If you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4. Deuteronomy, chapter 4. Uh, you can find that on page 149 if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. Deuteronomy, chapter 4. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 31. Well, when George Lucas released his final prequel in the Star Wars series, Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, all the way back in 2005, it was a huge success. Almost 20 years later, it actually still holds the record for the highest grossing day on a thir- of release on a Thursday. So it actually, on one day, made $50 million. Now, the fans who flocked to the theater went with high expectations, not so much because they expected to be surprised about the course of the story, but because they were hungry for resolution. You see, everybody already knew that the story, where the story was going to go. They, they already knew that Anakin Skywalker was going to fall and to become the notorious Darth Vader. They went to the theater because they had unanswered questions about how that was actually going to take place. When you already know how a story is going to end, it can take a bit of the thrill out of it. The ending feels inevitable, inescapable. No one was surprised to see Anakin take on the mask of evil. In fact, if the story had gone any other way, people would have been up in arms about it because we already knew uh, where the story was going to go. But at the same time, knowing what was coming didn't make it any easier to watch. It was hard to see this beloved hero become mastered by evil, to see him lose or destroy anything and everyone who was dear to him. And although it tied up a lot of loose ends and explained how things came to be the way that they were in the rest of the saga, you still left the theater feeling a sense of emptiness, a little bit of pain, wishing that maybe things could have been different. The book of Deuteronomy is timeless. It was meant to be a book for all generations, and yet I think to fully appreciate it, it is important to read it with an eye to those who first received this. That generation, the generation of people who physically heard Moses say these things, who entered the land with Joshua and first received the blessing of of God's promise to their forefathers, received careful instruction from God about how to live and how to thrive with him in this place. If you remember with me back uh, to the beginning of this chapter, Moses had instructed the people to hold fast to God's word, to remember God's work, and to keep and guard themselves so that they did not wander from God to serve other gods into idols. In our passage this morning, Moses warns the people what would happen to them and to future generations if they were not careful to do these things. So it's, it's hard as we read these words not to feel a little devastated about what Moses has to say because, spoiler alert, we already know the way the story is going to go. We already know that they're going to fall. Israel did not remain faithful to the covenant. Time after time, generation after generation, they fell into sin, repeating this cycle over and over and over. Time after time, they came short of God's holy 
righteous standards. So it can be hard in reading the book of Deuteronomy to hear these things, to know the direction it's going to go, to know that these curses and consequences were going to be fulfilled. This, this was a warning preached by Moses about what happens when we fall into sin. It's a prophecy that takes place before our eyes as we consider the rest of Israel's history, as we think about how they plunged into sin and idolatry, which ultimately led up to them being exiled, cast out of the land, being scattered among the nations. At the same time, this passage, as as difficult as it is to read, is filled with hope. Because in the end, it shines a light on the faithfulness of God to keep his promises even when we are faithless. In the end, this is a passage that brings us to the end of ourselves to cause us to hope in the mercy of God, which we receive in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's get into our text. If you would, please stand with me as I read Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 31. This is the word of the Lord. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over, to, over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, You will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, Israel's descent into sin, particularly idolatry, never really was an if so much as it was a win. That's not because the standard God set was too high or because he was unclear with them about what he expected. It's not as if God failed in any way. It's because they were human. And being human, they inherited a sin nature and a corrupt heart that could not, apart from God's grace, follow after him. Israel's problem is our problem. As we looked at last week, the struggle against idolatry is an issue that we all have. Now, we may not bow down to gods that are carved out of stone or wood or precious metals, but our hearts are still just as active, seeking to satisfy ourselves in things that are not God. 
In Galatians 5, verse 19, Paul lists idolatry as one of those works of the flesh, something that we have to actively fight against. The thing is that, like Israel, we all still fail and fall into old habits and old desires. And so the question we we find ourselves asking as we read this passage is, what happens when I stumble? What, What happens when I fall back into old ways? Is there any hope for me after I've tasted the grace and the glory and the love of God? If I fall into sin, what will happen? What hope is there? We all know that while believers have the Holy Spirit in their hearts to equip us to fight against that old master of sin, there is still a part of us that is still being made new. There's part of us that still finds those old passions attractive. Crazy as it is to say it out loud, there's still part of us that looks back, that looks at the path of discipleship with, to Christ as we look at the path of the cross and then finds ourselves looking back over our shoulder, desiring to return back to those proverbial leaks back in Egypt, back in our sin. In this passage, Moses aims to equip us to fight those old passions. To do this, he warns us to stay vigilant in our fight against the flesh. And he explains the consequences of what happens when we do sin. He does not mince words here. He's very candid. He's very straightforward about the seriousness of this situation. But he also says something in this passage which might strike us as a little unexpected. Something that keeps us from despair when we do fall into sin. So the main idea of this passage, the main idea of our time, if you take anything from this, take this. When you fall, don't despair because God your Savior remains steadfast and true. When you fall, don't despair because God your Savior remains steadfast and true. Now, in our time this morning, we have have three points for you, really three things that Moses covers as he talks about why we need to be so vigilant in fighting our sin, why we need, uh, what we need to understand about the curse of sin, and the triumph of God's covenant, his faithfulness to us. So, we're looking at the fall into corruption, the curse of sin, and the triumph of the covenant. So let's begin with this corruption, the fall, the slow fall into corruption. Great sin begins with little compromises. Great sin begins with little compromises. The serpent began his temptation of Eve by planting doubt in her mind about the word which God had spoken to her and to her husband. And as that lie took hold, he then began to tempt them to doubt God's motives, to question whether or not he really was good. And then, after that had taken root, we see that the serpent outright, outright contradicted God and then portrayed him as some sort of selfish, insecure villain. He didn't start there. He began with a smaller compromise, with changing words. As we look at Moses' warning in verses 25 through 28, we find him explaining to the people what would happen 
if they were not careful to listen to God's word or to remember his works or to be diligently on guard to keep themselves from the idols that were going to uh, compete for their attention as they came into the land. But as we look at this, there's something particularly interesting about the way he phrases this. And that's, that's, that really is the way that Moses considers not just the immediate effects of what would happen to this generation, but as he looks into the future, at future generations, about how small compromises would have long-term effects. Remember, these words were initially addressed to that generation of Israelites who first took possession of the land. But they were also intended to instruct future generations as well. The purpose of the law was to instruct people in how to live with God as his holy people. So these, were, these words are, are meant to be words of life. And yet we find that they are also words of judgment if they are disregarded. That's what Moses is concerned about here in verse 25. He was well aware that the same nature that dwelled in the hearts of the fathers and the mothers of this generation that is standing before him dwelled in them as well. And he knew that their children and their children's children would inherit that same rebellious heart too. And so here he is warning the people adamantly that they could not expect to act corruptly against the Lord and still expect to enjoy the benefits of a right relationship with him. Moses is concerned not just about these people who are standing before him, but about the whole trajectory of the nation. He was well aware that the generation standing before him was as capable of falling into corruption as any but his eyes here are set to the future. Without a shadow of a doubt, Moses is convinced and knows that this generation is going to receive the land. His concern here really is with the slow fade that comes over time when we are not pursuing God with a whole heart. So he says, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land. So he's talking about years down the road after the battles are all done, after the swords and the shields have been put away in favor of shovels and plows. He says, when that happens, take care. Now, when we think about times that stretch and challenge our faith, most of us think about those times when we are in danger or when we're in times of loss. We don't always think about the danger that pleasant times pose to our faith. You see, it's in those times of fullness that our hearts really are most prone to wander from God. A frightened child will stop at nothing to get to their mom or their dad, but they will run giggling into the road if they can't see the danger. That's what Moses is concerned about here that the people are going to settle into the land, that they're going to let their guard down once their enemies have been defeated, and that their hearts then will begin to wander away from God into the corruption of sin. In particular, he's concerned that the people are going to be consumed with idolatry. He says, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, or by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you were going over the Jordan to possess. 
Now, the generation that did first enter the land, they, they actually did a pretty good job of resisting the allure of false gods. But they failed to follow through with what God commanded them to do. And it started with little compromises, failing to put the Canaanite people out of the land entirely and deciding instead, you know what, it'd be really nice if we had some people to chop our wood and draw our water. Let's keep them around. But then we see that not one generation later after Joshua died, that those little compromises, those decisions to allow that to be there, in the end gave way to full-fledged idol worship. And then you get this mess that is the book of Judges. I don't know if you've read the book of Judges, but it is awful, okay? It is exactly what happens when it's what, that, this is the progression that we see. So Moses is warning the people of that. Don't go that way. Stay on your guard. Moses, obviously, was very right to be concerned about the people, wasn't he? Because living with God means pursuing God, taking an active role in putting those fleshly desires that are ever-present, that are clinging to us, putting them to death, refusing to make those little compromises which lead to greater and greater ones, living before our children and the next generation in a way that points them to the glory of God, the God who made them and who loves them as well. John Owen famously wrote, and I used to have a t-shirt of this, and my, I don't know where it is. I, have, I think my mom may have thrown it away because it had a skull on it, but anyway. John, famous, John Owen famously said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. That is a statement to tattoo on your mind, because it is so easy to just let sin live, not to kill it, to, to permit it, that sin, though, that seems so small, so manageable in the beginning, grows quickly into something that, is, that aims to control and choke the life out of us. Friends, Christ died to put that sin to death. Pet sins are not safe. No one would keep a deadly viper around their house. You must not keep or allow sin to be at home in your life. It is so tempting to keep parts of our life back from God, isn't it? We can do this without even realizing it. So let me point you, listen, let me point you and let me encourage you, listen to Moses' warning. It's the slow fade from faithfulness that is so deadly to our souls. It's those little compromises that corrupt our worship and our lives and then the lives of our children. So fight sin. Fight idolatry. The stakes are too high to grow drowsy on this battlefield. To understand that, to see that, we need to recognize the consequences of sin. In verses 26 through 28, Moses tells us why we need to be so diligent in this fight against sin, especially against those idols that just subtly creep into our hearts. So, calling heaven and earth, things that are permanent, not, not things that are, that, are going to be, that are going to pass away, but things that will remain after generation and generation. Calling those things as witnesses, Moses warns the people that if they allowed their hearts to grow fat and lazy, 
and to wander away from God to serve other gods, that they would soon perish, die from off the land that God was bringing them to. He says, you will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed. And that's not all. Moses goes on to say, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. You will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Now, as I look at what Moses says here, I see five consequences. Five consequences or curses of sin that he outlines here. First, Moses tells them that if they act corruptly towards God, and if they choose sin over God, that they would lose the blessings, especially the land which God had set apart for them to enjoy. Now, when I was in science class, we used to take bits of, it was called litmus paper, to test whether or not something was acidic or basic. It was helpful for identifying something that you didn't know what it was. In the Old Testament, the promised land and the blessings within it were a sort of litmus test, a sign of God's favor, which were evidence of God's love for Israel. Those were benefits that were the result of God's mercy and grace. But as a result, they also provided a view into the state of Israel's relationship with God. They were kind of like that litmus paper. While the nation walked with God, they enjoyed security and blessing. But if there was a famine or drought, it was often because God was getting the people's attention, hey, you are forsaking me. Moses warns the people that they could not expect to enjoy the benefits of God's love if they were loving and chasing other things. If they broke covenant with God, if they cut themselves off from the very fountain that was providing them with all these blessings, they could not expect to receive the blessings of God. Instead, they could only expect to receive the curses of their sin. Now, I want to be really careful here because it would be so easy to twist this into thinking that we can earn what we want from God if we just serve him the way he wants. That if I give God what he wants, he'll give me what I want. We need to understand that the blessings of the land and everything in it was an overflow of God's love for Israel. They didn't earn it from God. He gave it to them. They received those things because he loved them and because it was his delight to graciously pour those blessings out on them. At the same time, God is making it clear through Moses to Israel and to us that we cannot expect to enjoy the benefits that come from a right relationship with God if we are not pursuing him first and foremost. Now the second consequence that Moses mentions here is death. He tells Israel that if they fall into this corruption, they will perish from off the land and be utterly destroyed. Sin brings death. In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would surely die. And Paul tells us in Romans 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. James explains that we each are tempted to sin when we are lured and enticed by our own desires. And then when those desires have given birth, they give birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In the book of Joshua, 
God marked the Canaanites off for destruction, not merely to be pushed out of the land, but to be utterly destroyed from it. And so as Moses speaks to Israel, as he speaks to these people, warning them not to fall into this corruption, he warns them and us that if we pursue sin, we are pursuing our own destruction. It may satisfy us in the moment, but in the end, it will bring us death. The third consequence of sin, which Moses mentions here, is that the people will be scattered among the nations. Those who were not killed would find themselves being cast out of the land of God's favor to dwell in darkness like the nations they apparently wanted to be like. They would lose their distinctiveness as a people and they would bear the shame of their sin and loss publicly. They would become a byword. The nations would look at them and say, what a terrible tragedy. The fourth consequence that Moses speaks of here is that they would be small. Now, that may not seem quite, that seems like a subtle detail, but actually it's important because if you remember back to God's blessing of Abraham, if you remember why God changed Abram to Abraham, his name, was because he said he would be the father of many. In the curse of disobedience, God says that blessing would be reversed. Only a remnant of the people would be left to be scattered among the nations. The fifth consequence which Moses mentions, and the most devastating, even more devastating than death, is that Moses says they would be separated from God. In verse 28, Moses tells the people that they would serve other gods in the nations they were being scattered among. Now, that's not to say that these other gods were actually gods. After all, Moses describes them as being made of stone and wood, being the work of human hands. While the Lord is, these gods are not. They are senseless. They they cannot taste. They cannot speak. They cannot see or hear. They cannot deliver those who call out to them. And those who serve such gods quickly become like them. So there they are. Five consequences for Israel if they abandoned the Lord and acted corruptly towards him. Put simply, this is a reversal of all those blessings which God had given the people in his covenant to them. So it's easy to see, right, why Moses is so adamant to the people to warn them, be on your guard. Don't fall into this. This is what will happen. If they fell away from the Lord and began to serve idols, God makes it very clear that he would give them over to the desires and the passions and the destruction of their flesh. They would lose the blessings and lose their relationship with him. They would lose their distinctiveness and ultimately they would lose their lives. This is is what happens when branches are cut from the vine that they were meant to hang upon. Sin is not merely a mistake. It is an act of treason against the God of the universe, against the rightful king of our lives. So if we're to fight sin, if we're to be killing it the way that we are called to do, we have to begin first and foremost by recognizing what sin is. We must see it for the dreadful, hateful thing that it is. And we must hate it. We must aim to chase it from our lives. The bad news as I've already alluded to, is that there is still part of us that loves that sin, that longs to serve that old, dark master. The flesh loves to be gratified. 
and it must be starved. Eventually, all the curses and all the consequences which Moses describes here did come on Israel. Although the law taught them how to live, we find that it actually had no power to make them live that out. And so, as Paul says in Romans 7, verses 10 and 11, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Apart from a divine intervention, apart from a complete heart change, we are all like Anakin Skywalker, full of good intent, but fallen into the deception of evil and burdened with the curse of death and separation from God. We are spiritual stillborns, dead in our trespasses and sins, captive to the influence of Satan, servants of the darkness, enemies of God, who deserve to be destroyed. But, but, that is not the end of the story. That is not all that Moses has to say here. That is where we arrive at the triumph of God's enduring promise. In the midst of the black curse of sin, which Moses describes for us here, there is a ray of hope, a light shining brightly, unable to be dimmed or diminished, a living hope in a living God who saves and delivers and never, ever, ever fails. Look at verse 29. But... From there, so in the places where God scattered you because of your sin, from that place of death and darkness, from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. The curse of sin is not enough to keep God from his people. Let that sink in. The curse of death is not enough to keep God from his people. After all that Moses has said, you would think that that would be completely and totally impossible for Israel to seek after God and to find him. But it's not. You would expect God to be totally done with him, but he's not. And that's really what makes this statement from Moses, this promise, so amazing. Despite Israel's inevitable betrayal, despite all the ways that they failed God and lived in pursuit of other things, we see God promising them that he would overcome on their behalf. As a loving, good father, God will discipline his people. But he does not remain angry with them forever. He declares that he would rescue them and deliver them, not just from the symptoms of their suffering, but from the very source of their suffering. Moses says that while the people are in the midst of their suffering, their tribulation, they will find the Lord if they seek him with all their heart and with all their soul. He says that, as I read that, he says that so definitively, so confidently, and as you think about where they're going to be doing this, they're going to be doing this in a land that is overrun with idols, okay? They're going to be doing place, this in places like Babylon, where it's easy to go with the flow, where to get positions of power, it's, it's easy to do compromises. 
And you have to wonder, if they weren't faithful in the place where God dwelled with them, how on earth are they going to be faithful in a place like that? And so we have to ask, Moses, how can you say this? How can you be so confident about this? After the way that Israel abandoned God and pursued their sin, how can we understand that all of a sudden they're going to start seeking the Lord and that they're going to find him? I mean, that would take more power to do that, to change people's hearts, than it takes to raise people from the dead. And that's exactly what God does. Look at verse 31. Moses explains exactly how this transformation is going to happen. He says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you. He will not destroy you. He will not forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. The reason that Moses can say so confidently that in the midst of this distress, out of this tribulation, suddenly God's people are going to turn and they're going to seek the Lord, even in a foreign land, even after they lost everything, is because the Lord is faithful. It is because He is merciful. It is because He does not forget His people. It is because He does not grow weary of caring for them or attending to their needs. He is vigilant in His love and He is faithful to His covenant promises. When God disciplines, He also restores. He is the giver of all life, and he is able to breathe new life into the dead hearts of sinners, to make the prophecy of Ezekiel happen over those dry bones when it was utterly impossible, and God says, I'm going to speak to you in your grave and make you alive. God is the giver of all life. God is the one who is able to take the dead heart of a sinner and to make it alive so that it desires to seek after him. Theologians talk about the effectual calling of God to describe this way that God calls his people to himself. And Ephesians 2 really describes how we all were dead in our trespasses and our sins, but that God has made us alive. And it explains that he has done that through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. This is where the gospel intersects with the curse that we read here. In John 15, verse 16, Jesus told his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. In John 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, describing how he came to lay down his life for the sheep, his people, so that they might have life. He says the sheep hear his voice calling for them, and they listen to to him. And in John 6, verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Do you see the connection that's going on here? The reason Moses could say with such confidence to a nation he knows is going to sin, he knows is going to fall, he knows is going to be scattered and destroyed, 
you will seek him and you will find him is because Moses knew that God is a God who seeks and finds his people. This is just like Adam. When after he had heard the curse of sin pronounced by God on him and on his wife and on the serpent, turned around and called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. How could Adam, after God had told him that the very ground he had been taken from and made from was going to resist him all his life and fight him until he returned to it in death, how could he then turn and name his wife the mother of all the living? Have you ever thought about that? You ever thought about the order of how that happened? That's what Eve's name means. And it's not mentioned in the book of Genesis until after sin and after the curse of death had entered the world. You ever notice that? That order. Why could Adam do that? Why could he, hearing God say, you are dead, Adam, and everyone who comes after you is dead? How could Adam then turn around and call his wife's name Eve? the mother of the living, I'll tell you, is because he heard the rest of what God had to say. What he said to the serpent, I will put enmity, strife, war between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Adam heard that and he believed God that an offspring was coming who would crush the head of the deceiver and, would, who, and though he would be bruised for sin would triumph in victory over the death that had just been pronounced over him. Jesus Christ is that offspring. He is the victorious king who rides to the rescue of his people, redeems them from their captivity, returns them to his father and leads them home in the train of his glory to be a people who were called and collected to be his forever. Look, friends, the law, while it directs us to the way of life, has no power to actually make us alive. The law can only condemn us. That's what makes this passage so frightening and at the same time so wonderful because while it empties us of ourselves, showing us how short our efforts come of God's holy standards, at the same time it points us to God who is merciful, who will not leave us or destroy us, but has designed to redeem us by giving us his only begotten son and giving us new hearts that believe and follow. So my prayer for you this morning consists of two things. I pray that God will give you a real and accurate understanding of how terrible your sin really is. I pray that God will rip the lid off the, cotton, the, the coffin that we all always try to contain our sin in. That he would let you smell the stink the stench of that rotten corpse and that he would make your soul gag at the sight of your sin and that your heart would tremble at your inability to do anything about it. Well, then I my, my also pray that as God reveals that reality to your heart, he would also turn your eyes from that sin to the glory and the beauty of his faithfulness which is displayed in the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
My prayer that is as God does that, you would be completely and absolutely overcome and that you will trust today and tomorrow and the next day in him and that you would live in his life at war with sin and at peace with God. My prayer is that God would fill us all with the knowledge of his love, not just the theory of it, but the experience of it, that, he, that we would know him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us, and that we would live and walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called with humility and gentleness and patience bearing one another up in love. That is the path of discipleship to Christ and is a path we walk by his grace. So brothers and sisters, our sin, it is great, but Christ is greater. So fight sin and rest in him. Let's pray. God, as as we read what Moses had to say to Israel, as we put this text in the storyline of Scripture, your story of how you have redeemed the world, as we look at this place and as we grieve in our hearts because we know where this is going, we know Israel is going to fall, that these curses are going to happen. Yet, Father, you have also woven in this golden, unbreakable cord that points us and brings us to the foot of the cross where our inability becomes is taken care of in the ability of Christ Father we thank you for his blood we thank you for his perfection we thank you that he did not shy away from making atonement for sin but despised the shame of the cross and for the joy set before him endured it and is exalted now as the King of kings and the Lord of lords who gives us life. And I pray, Father, that you this morning would give us a renewed sense of his beauty and his glory and that we would fight sin, that we would endure with patience and that we would rest in him alone. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.